we all want to be happy. And yet happiness is a thing that is so misunderstood. When the Buddha undertook his spiritual journey, he wanted to understand how to be happy. He wanted to understand why we suffer and how we can be free of suffering. And when he began to teach, he said, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. His first discourse after his enlightenment, he went back to meet with, uh, or to meet up, or to find five ascetics that he had practiced with. And he gave a discourse on the Four Noble Truths, which encompasses all of his teachings, kind of the basic platform of his teachings. It's said that all of them had enlightenment experiences after hearing this discourse. So tonight I'd like to talk about, well, I'm not going to talk about all four noble truths. I was telling um, my partner the other night that I was really only going to talk about three noble truths, the first three, because um, there really isn't time to cover all four. And he said, you should call your talk 75% of the noble truths. (laughs) So tonight, (laughs) my talk is 75% of the noble truths. (laughs) So the four noble truths that the Buddha taught are, there is suffering, there is a cause to suffering, there is an end of suffering, and there is a path to the end of suffering. So the fourth one, um, the path, is uh, basically all of the teachings that we're giving you over the course of the uh, retreat. The path of ethics, the path of mind development, and the path of wisdom. So there, we're finished with the fourth. Sometimes it was said that the Buddha uh, was like a physician. He stated what the illness was. He stated the cause of the illness. He stated the medicine to take and then gave instructions on how to take the medicine. It's said that the first noble truth, uh, the truth of suffering, is to be seen. The truth of the cause of suffering is to be understood. The truth of the end of suffering is to be realized. And the truth of um, the path to the end of suffering is to be developed. So we'll start tonight with the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, which is to be seen. So the word in Pali is dukkha. And this word has many nuances. And it's usually translated as suffering, but this hardly does justice to uh, this word. Some other translations that are often used are uh, unsatisfactoriness, uneasiness, discontent, tension, stress. In his first discourse, the one that he gave with the ascetics, he describes in detail what suffering is. Birth is suffering. Old age is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. 
sorrow, lamentation, and dejection are suffering. Contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant are suffering. Not getting what one wishes is suffering. In brief, clinging to the five aggregates of the personality, body, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness as possessions of myself is suffering. may sound a little depressing, but I actually love to talk about dukkha. It's one of my favorite subjects. I think that we suffer by denying the reality of dukkha in life, that we suffer more by denying it than by facing it. Facing it and understanding it deeply is the way out of suffering. Let's look at some of these different aspects of dukkha that the Buddha mentions. First of all, there's uh, the body and mind, the suffering in the body and the mind, which is conventionally how we think of suffering. So we all suffer bodily aches and pains. We get sick. Uh, Most people wouldn't argue with this. We have to deal with these bodies that malfunction at times, and it doesn't get easier as we get older. So old age, sickness, and death. We live in a kind of interesting denial of this truth. There's this, I, I saw on um, a news program a couple of years ago, this whole new fad, I guess you could call it, called calorie restriction. and It's called CR, calorie restriction. And the idea is that um, by really restricting calories, one can live longer. And the idea with these folks um, engaged in this is that they want to undertake this calorie restriction and live longer. And then it sa- they said, a quote, until we eradicate the greatest cause of death, aging. <laughs> That's kind of blatant, but you know what's interesting to me? I'm really fascinated, fascinated by how we all deny aging, or at least how I do. You know, it's kind of subtler, but like, for example, like a year and a half ago, I took my goddaughter for her senior year, for her graduation present, I took her on a trip. And when the pictures came back, she was showing them, and there was this woman in the picture, and she had, like, white hair. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, who's that? I mean, really, that was my first thought. And then I was like, it was me. <laughs> and, um, you know, gray hair. I have a fair amount of gray hair. And uh, I just, and in the picture, somehow with the light, I think it, I think it even looked grayer. <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> you know, we live in, uh, there's this interesting denial of getting older. I'm fascinated to, you know, like I look at myself in the mirror and I'm, I really think that I see myself 10 years younger than I am. I I, I really think that happens, you know. It's so deep, this denial of aging. And and this denial of all of the um, dukkha of a human body, of living in a human body. So 
So then there's dukkha too, uh, and the other conventional understanding of um, dealing with our turbulent minds. All of the sorrow, pain, sorrow, lamentation, and despair, as the Buddha puts it. These minds that um, sometimes may just annoy us, but can give us so much trouble that they can completely incapacitate us. This is another level of dukkha. Then the Buddha gets really actually um, deeper into the issue of suffering. He says, contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant are suffering. Not getting what one wishes is suffering. Life just doesn't always go the way we want it to. We're separated from what we like, and we have to tolerate or suffer what we don't like. We wish for life to be perfect and to conform to our um, specifications, and it doesn't work that way. The Rolling Stones stated it very simply, you can't always get what you want. (laughs) When I was um, in Burma a couple years ago, a friend and I... um, both had very different, they have things called kutis. They're little, it's like your little hut. It's called a kuti. And we had very different kutis. My kuti was on a ridge. It had um, a beautiful view of the Irrawaddy River. Um, however, because it was exposed, it was quite hot. It got very hot. Um, it was quite noisy. The noise from the village, the sounds from the village would come right up to my hut. <laughs> but because it was exposed, also there weren't any insects. The wind kept the insects away. My friend had this kuti back in the um, ravine. It was quiet. It was cool. However, uh, it didn't have a view. <laughs> it had a lot of bugs. <laughs> even had a snake one day. And we had this interesting thing where we would kind of like each of us wind up coveting what was nice about the other person's kuti. So, you know, I'd say, oh, your kuti's so nice because it's quiet, you know, and noise doesn't get back here and it's cool. She said, well, your kuti's so nice you don't have any bugs, you know. And what we came to the conclusion is that there isn't a perfect kuti. <laughs> and so sometimes when things weren't going right, like at other time right, right, as we wanted them to go. At other times um, during our time there, we'd say, you know, there's no perfect cootie. It became kind of our mantra to remind us that life doesn't always go in um, conformity with our wishes. However, uh, that doesn't stop us from wishing that it would. Um, And this is part of the understanding of dukkha. What this uh, understanding of dukkha also points to is a certain vulnerability that we have as humans living in a world that changes that we can't control. Certainly at times we can um, make ourselves more comfortable, but ultimately uh, life flows on in its own way. And we're vulnerable because of that. And this is part of this sense of dukkha. We readily see that um, contact with the unpleasant is suffering. But part of this understanding of dukkha also extends to understanding the suffering and pleasant experiences. 
the Buddha didn't deny that life has beautiful experiences and wonderful moments, but that these are even tinged with dukkha because they're bound to end. You can't hold on to them. And in this way, there's a translation of dukkha's unsatisfactoriness, that things of this world, of this mundane world, are not going to satisfy us, that we can't find permanent, everlasting happiness through the pleasant things of this world, through trying to avoid uh, the unpleasant and hold on to the pleasant. There's a third kind of suffering that the Buddha talked at times about, and it's a kind of existential kind of suffering. It's that suffering um, of living in a human body um, with constant uh, um, impact on our sense doors, that we live in this human body that... um, it's, it's similar to the vulnerability issue, that we live in this human body that's um, constantly impacted by sounds and sights and stimulus. There's constant movement in the mind. We constantly have to take care of these bodies. At times on retreat, it becomes so obvious to us that there's so much we have to do to take care of these bodies, so much work. You know, we have to wash them and feed them and rest them and brush the teeth and groom them and, <laughs> you know, get find medicine when they're ill, and it just it goes on and on. This is a kind of existential suffering that the Buddha talked about. What fascinates me is that we live in a culture that I believe denies suffering more than, um, than most cultures I remember that I saw my first dead person when I was in Nicaragua. I was living in Nicaragua when I was 23 years old, and I had never seen um, a dead person before that. I remember when I told the people at the um, wake that this was the first time I'd ever seen a dead person. They were in absolute shock. They couldn't believe that I had made it to 23 years old without seeing somebody who was dead. I remember also I had a student that year. I was teaching English as a second language, and I had a young student, and we were talking about the war. I was there, um, for those of you who are old enough to remember, I was there during the Contra War in the early 80s. And um, one of my students was talking about a war, about the war before um, when the revolution had happened and how horrible it was. And I said, well, you know, I, I really don't understand. I've never been in a war. And she looked at me. She said, Miss... You've never been in a war? (laughs) She was, like, shocked. She couldn't believe that I hadn't been in a war. We also try to hide dukkha in this culture. Um, You know, old people are put away in nursing homes. I think the whole um, insurance industry is really interesting. It's like you will be protected if you get this insurance or that insurance. It's kind of a denial of our vulnerability as humans. Or lawsuits. Lawsuits are really interesting. We live in this um, um, culture where there's a lot of lawsuits. Lawsuits always assign blame. There's always somebody to blame if suffering happens, something bad happens. It's a denial, again, of vulnerability. 
I found a quote recently that said, America, a country where everything is done to prove that life isn't tragic. The Buddha said, Dukkha happens. I believe our society denial of suffering um, has some uh, has has some um, effect on the levels of anxiety we see, depression, the frantic pace to avoid facing reality, the mind-numbing stimulation and entertainment, the constant need for stimulation that we see in this country. And so we come here, and we stop, and we face the reality of suffering. Like I said, for me, to read about dukkha, uh, the first time I remember reading about Buddhism was when I was living in Nicaragua, actually, and, and I was reading this book, and it was talking about dukkha and suffering and why we suffer. And I remember reading it and just being so relieved, like, wow. Somebody's talking about this. It's great. We can't fix it until we see it clearly. And there's a positive side of this suffering in that it inspires us to search. It's said that the Buddha lived a very wealthy life. He lived in a palace and was quite protected. It's said that his father um, received a prophecy of the, for the Buddha when the Buddha was born that he would uh, either be a great king or a great religious leader. And the father wanted him to be a king. So he protected him from suffering as much as he could, thinking perhaps, knowing that if the Buddha saw suffering, he would be inspired to search. It's said that the Buddha as a young man um, did what young men will do. He de- defied his father and uh, slipped out of the palace grounds on a number of occasions and saw what are known as the four heavenly messengers. He saw a sick person. He saw a, uh, an old person. He saw a, di- a dead person, and he saw a renunciate. And with the first three, it said that he was asked questions. You know, why... Do we get old? Why do we get sick? Why do we die? Why do we suffer? And then with the renunciate, he was inspired to go on his own search. For many people, it will be some suffering in our lives that will shock us enough to want to ask questions, to want to search deeply into this issue of suffering and freedom. So the Buddha said that we have to see suffering intimately if we want to free ourselves from it. It's not our usual stance. We usually think of suffering as something that we would like to get rid of rather than something that we would like to see and understand. But to have a well-balanced spiritual life, we have to know how to engage with suffering. We have to be willing to get a little dirty
there's a um, quote from Ajahn Suchito called The Cleansing Process. Most people, heedless and unawakened, push things aside all the time. We repress, only consciously accepting certain things. This is a habit learned from our society. We only allow into consciousness what is socially acceptable. Having been told we should only have rational, sensible thoughts, we push aside hatred and other emotions that are nasty, insane, stupid, or dirty. But these things are still there. If we repress, we never get rid of anything. It's just that we don't look at it anymore. In meditation, we allow things that we have repressed to come into consciousness, no matter how irrational they are. Once we allow something into consciousness and let it go, it ceases. It's a cleansing process, like an enema. What comes out isn't very nice, but once it's out, everyone feels better. (laughs) (laughs) If we don't have any wisdom in life, we try to manipulate and control everyone and ourselves, filtering out what we accept and rejecting the rest. Then when life doesn't allow us to control things, we fall apart and everything comes pouring out, what's called a nervous breakdown. However, if you are meditating, you can have skillful nervous breakdowns. (laughs) You recognize that all your unwanted thoughts and feelings are just conditions of mind and they are not self. You can release them rather than trying to control them. So you're opening and freeing the mind. So we open ourselves to our suffering, or suffering. We come here and it arises. But obviously we want to engage in our suffering in a way that liberates us, not that um, increases our suffering. Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai forest master, said, there are two kinds of suffering The first is the suffering that causes more suffering that we repeat over and over. The second is the suffering that comes when we stop running. The second kind is the suffering that can lead to freedom. So every time we sit and we stop running, we have the potential to expand the sense of freedom in our hearts and minds. So basically we are opening to the fullness of our lives here, which includes both joy and suffering. In practice, we start to see that resisting suffering causes more dukkha than easing our way into the truth of it. We see that there is a resting place in being okay with the fact that dukkha happens and that we can deal with it. A quote from Brad Warner in his book, Hardcore Zen. Meditation isn't about blissing out or going into alpha alpha brainwave trance. It's about facing who and what you really are in every damn moment. And you aren't just bliss. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) You're a mess. (laughs) We all are. (laughs) But here's the thing. That mess is itself enlightenment. 
the only way out is through. It's like that bitter medicine that Sharda mentioned last night, the bitter medicine that leads to sukha, that leads to happiness. So the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. The second noble truth, the cause of suffering. This is a good question, right? What causes suffering? It's said that it must be understood. Now conventional wisdom has it that suffering is caused by um, having to tolerate unpleasantness and by being separated from pleasantness. And so then conventional wisdom would say that the answer is to increase how much pleasantness we can have in our lives and decrease how much unpleasantness we can have. And that's the answer to the happiness riddle. The Buddha said that that very search, that very strategy is the cause of our suffering. So the very strategy that we use to find happiness is actually what causes our suffering. The cause of our suffering is in Pali Tanha, or thirst, craving. When we can't accept life as it is, when we resist it, cling to it, close to it, are blind to it. One uh, description I heard that I love is shackles in the heart. That the cause of our suffering are the shackles in our heart. The Buddha talked about a number of kinds of craving. The one that we can most easily relate to is the craving after sense pleasures, pleasant sense pleasures, pleasant experiences. Or the flip side of the coin, pushing away unpleasant experiences. They're really um, the same coin, two sides, the grasping or clinging to pleasantness and the pushing away unpleasantness. They're both... Um, an inability to accept things as they are, to accept life as it unfolds. They're both um, a rejection and a protection from understanding our vulnerability and understanding that everything changes. And they're very restless states of mind. They are suffering. You can feel that, that grasping and aversion are states of restlessness, unease, tension, suffering. So if we watch our minds, it doesn't take long to see that the basic theme that is operating most of the time is wanting pleasantness and not wanting unpleasantness. It's deeply conditioned in us humans. Sylvia Bornstein, if you pay attention for just five minutes, you know some very fundamental dharma. Things change. Nothing stays the same. Sensations come and go quite impersonally according to conditions and not because of anything that you do or think you do. Changes come and go quite by themselves. In the first five minutes of paying attention, you learn that pleasant sensations lead to the desire that these sensations will stay and that unpleasant sensations lead to the hope that they will go away. And both the attraction and the aversion amount to tension in the mind. 
Both are uncomfortable. So in the first minutes, you get a big lesson about suffering, wanting things to be other than what they are. Such a tremendous amount of truth to be learned by just closing your eyes and paying attention to bodily sensations. Feeding this uh, craving, uh, this holding on, craving, wanting, and the aversion is um, ignorance. And ignorance in Buddhism means not understanding the way things are, not understanding how life is, the nature of reality, not understanding fundamentally that all things change. I've been reading recently a book of some quotes by Suzuki Roshi. Really been enjoying, and here's one. Suzuki Roshi, I've been listening to your lectures for years, a student said during the question and answer time following a lecture, but I just don't understand. Could you just please put it in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? (laughs) Everyone laughed. (laughs) Suzuki laughed. Everything changes, he said. And he asked for another question. That's it. Everything changes. It said at one point that the Buddha put this rather poetically. He said, Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Comes, goes. Everything arises and passes away. If we don't understand change very deeply, we try to control life through grasping and aversion. So we live in this state of tension of trying to control life. So the clinging to pleasant sense experiences and aversion to unpleasant sense experiences, so one type type of craving. Another type, a couple of types that the Buddha talked to that, about that I won't go into quite as much detail, but he talked about clinging to existence and clinging to non-existence. In the description of suffering, he said, in brief, clinging to the five aggregates of the personality body, feeling, perception, volitional formations and consciousness as possessions of myself is suffering. So the other way that clinging is suffering is is through um, contracting around a sense of separate self. So taking um, our experience that flows, that flows and changes like everything else, and contracting around it and creating a sense of self. So this also has its roots in ignorance. It has its roots in not understanding that everything changes applies also to what we call ourselves, to this body-mind process. It's not understanding understanding that we're a verb rather than a noun. 
a process rather than some kind of solid, separate, permanent entity that's separate from the rest of life. So the first two noble truths, the noble truth of suffering and the noble truth of the cause of suffering, craving. Now we'll turn to the good news, that there is a third noble truth, which is the truth of the end of suffering. That we can learn um, not to be uh, bound to suffering, but that there is release from our bondage. And meditation is about this, learning this way to freedom from suffering. So this third noble truth is talked about with words such as enlightenment, nibbana, freedom, liberation. And it's talked about in different ways. Another one of the quotes from this book of Suzuki Roshi, someone asked Suzuki, what is nibbana? And he answered, seeing one thing through to the end. I was fascinated by this answer. I just connected with it um, viscerally, intuitively, and then thought about it. He's talking about, to me, he's talking about understanding this riddle or conundrum of existence so deeply and thoroughly, not being satisfied with going part way but really going all the way in understanding what causes suffering and what causes freedom from suffering. The Buddha, um, in the first years of his practice, he went to a number of teachers, and they taught him uh, the standard practices of his time. And uh, a number of these practices had to do with concentration, so attaining different states of concentration. And he mastered all of these plans, or these uh, strategies, these practices, and he still felt like he, he, didn't, he hadn't found the answer. Why do we suffer? And so he was, um, there was certain pressure for him to like, stay within these traditions. Um, he was asked to be teachers of, of these different kinds of practices that he had mastered. And he wasn't satisfied. He said, there has to be more. So he continued to explore until he got to the root of the problem. So he saw it through all the way to the end. That's Nibbana. There's also um, many ways, many different words or um, synonyms for Nibbana that are pointed to in the scriptures. I'll read some of them. The uncreated the true, the beyond, the ageless, the undecaying, peace, the deathless, the exquisite, the exhaustion of craving, the marvelous, the passionless, the pure, release, shelter, Harbor, refuge, the ultimate. These words have a sense of spaciousness, 
of release, of safety, of having gone all the way to the end. Different traditions of Buddhism um, talk about nibbana or freedom of uh, freedom or liberation in many um, in different ways, but there's one way that all of the descriptions are the same, and all um, agree that freedom is the end of craving. The Buddha said, "And what monks is a noble truth of the cessation of suffering?" It is the complete fading away and extinction of this craving, its forsaking and abandonment, liberation from it. Not clinging to anything, not separating ourselves out from the flow of life, not trying to control the uncontrollable, not struggling. Trungpa Rinpoche says, there's no need to struggle to be free. The absence of struggle is in itself freedom. So any moment that the mind is freed of greed, craving, attachment, desire, any moment that the mind is free of aversion, fear, anger, pushing away, And that the mind is free of ignorance, of not understanding, of delusion, is a moment of freedom. Any time that we can see life clearly just as it is and be with it with balance is a moment of freedom. So you might be thinking, well, it sounds nice, Rebecca, but how do we do it? So the way to this freedom is learning how to open to life as it is, knowing life deeply, understanding the nature of life deeply, making peace with life as it is. The Buddha talked about two places of freedom, two places that we can explore this question of freedom, of liberation. One place is at the um, moment that greed, desire, aversion arise in the mind. We need to explore these states intimately, to understand them deeply in order to find freedom. One particular uh, mind state that I've worked with a lot is fear. When I first started my practice, I would tumble into these places of fear that were very um, frightening. (laughs) There was this um, mind state, I called it the black hole, that I um, would get lost in, this place of feeling um, deep terror And to me, it was kind of like spinning in outer space, and nobody nobody would save me. And I used to get really um, lost in this place and suffered a lot. And so I used the practice to explore this 
one of my favorites, we all have our favorites, right? To explore this mind state, to understand what it meant to be free. So our teachers are often our places that are most difficult. What we learn is that freedom doesn't come in trying to get rid of these grasping aversion. If we're trying to get rid of it, that's just more aversion, right? We're just digging a deeper hole that way. Freedom comes from exploring it, understanding it, and learning how to be mindful of it. So I learned how to um, go into this place and explore what it really felt like with mindfulness. And it took time. You know, at first it was like, I just had to learn to get out of it. That was my first job. It's like when I got lost there, it was like, how do you get out of this place? And that was important because I needed um, that to be able to continue the search, right? So I learned how to get out of it. And then I would like learn how to like just peek and then back off, right? And then over time, I learned to actually be able to go into this mind state and actually experience it with some sense of clarity. And what was fascinating was that over um, time as I did this, it started to be that I would see this mind state arise. Start, I would see it start, starting to come. It was almost like a little monster. <laughs> like this little monster would be coming at me. right? And I would just be like, hmm, I know you. I don't have to go there. And... Um, so it didn't. So it was like through this deep knowing of this mind state, it lost its power over me. I learned not to believe its stories. I learned that I didn't have to get lost there. So whatever is our challenge, we work with it. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's sadness. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's wanting, longing, craving. It's like, can we get interested in it? We actually um, point towards getting interested. Everything that comes up is part of our practice here. There's nothing that's happening here that is separate from your practice. We start right where we are. So maybe it's resistance that's coming up or numbness. Or some of you might even be actually having a good time. That's, we work with that too. So if it's pleasant, you know, it's like, how are we relating to this pleasantness? We look at how we're relating to our experience. This is what we want to get interested in, this reactivity to life. So if it's pleasant, if you're having a good time, if you're having pleasant experiences, how are you relating to that? And you let it be as it is, or is there some sense of holding on, contracting, clinging, wanting it to continue? So we have mindfulness to help us in this search, this precious quality of mindfulness. It gives us some sense of um, hope in, in our um, journey of investigation and exploration of our reactivity. There was this Brahmin named Ajita, and he asked the Buddha, In every direction, the rivers of desire are running. How can we dam them, and what will hold them back? What can we use to close the floodgates? 
And the Buddha replied, Any river can be stopped with the dam of mindfulness. I call it the flood stopper. And with wisdom you can close the floodgates. Any river (laughs) with mindfulness. There's uh, a number of stories in the uh, scriptures about the Buddha being um, played with or tormented by Mara. I think Mara's been mentioned here already. Mara, I guess you would call he's the closest to the Buddha, Buddhist devil. Um, and uh, he seemed to, one of his favorite activities seemed to be bothering people who were trying to meditate and find freedom. <laughs> He may have been around here some. <laughs> There's a story of this nun named um, Alav, Alav, Alavika. That's my attempt to say her name. So she took out her bowls and she went um, to sit deep in the woods and was meditating. And says, then Mara, the evil one, evil one wanting to arouse fear, horripilation, and terror in her, wanting to make her fall away from seclusion, approached her and addressed her in verse. There's no escape in the world, so what are you trying to do with solitude? Enjoy sensual delights. Don't be someone who later regrets. Maybe Mara's been talking to some of you here. (laughs) (laughs) And so then the the, um, nun thought about it. You know, who is this? Who's this talking to me? And then it occurred to her, oh, this is Mara who has recited this verse, trying to arouse fear, her ripulation, and terror in me, wanting me to fall away from seclusion. And so she turns to him and she says, Mara, um, I know you. And then Mara, it's always the same line at the end of these stories, then Mara, the evil one, sad and dejected at realizing Alavika and the nun knows me, vanished right there. It's it's I can it's just so cute the sad and dejected part, <laughs> but the point is that she knows him, and that's enough, you know. When we know our own particular maras, when we can just say, "I know you," not you have to go away. You're bad. I can't stand you. Just I know you. Then, the power of Mara or the power of our particular. Um, struggles, lessens, and our freedom increases. So that's one point. When we when we look directly at this reactivity, our, our um, reactivity of mind, and try to understand it deeply. There's another point of freedom which we've mentioned, and this is the point of feeling tone, the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So as you know, we are deeply conditioned when something is pleasant for craving attachment to arise and when something is unpleasant for aversion to arise and when something or our experience is neutral for ignorance or delusion or is kind of spacing out to arise. And these follow so closely, right? They're so, uh, they seem to be so um, bound together. So often, unpleasant, aversion, right away. Pleasant, clinging, right away. So we explore this. So we explore this chain of conditioning. We explore how this works to cause us to suffer. 
and we start to understand that one, they don't automatically have to go together, and that's freedom. I remember um, one time sitting in this very hall. One thing that I worked a lot with was sounds. I, I had an aversion to a lot of sounds, <laughs> and um, they were a good meditation subject for me to, to learn about aversion and unpleasantness and how they work together. So one time I was sitting in this hall, and um, they were mowing the lawn outside, and I started to think about how this was ruining my meditation <laughs> and how, um, you know, why can't they mow the lawn during the walking periods or uh, something like that. And um, then I followed the instructions, you know, to just focus on the unpleasantness. And it was like, wow, it's unpleasant. And look at all this stuff that comes out of just the fact that it's unpleasant. And it kind of broke that chain that unpleasant has to bring up aversion. It was like, oh, it's unpleasant. Okay. Big deal. (laughs) So... We can look at this feeling tone when we find ourselves struggling. A good time to work with feeling tone is when we find ourselves struggling with um, uh, attachment or struggling with aversion. We can kind of back up and notice that if there's attachment present, notice the pleasantness of the stimulus of what's causing the attachment to arise. And if a lot of aversion's present, notice the unpleasant quality of that experience. It can be quite freeing. So we look at um, the reactivity of mind. We look at the conditioning, the conditioning um, with the feeling tongue. And basically we start to see how we make a problem out of life. The Zen master Zansanim said, you make problem, you have problem. (laughs) So we look at how we make a problem, how we have a problem. And we start to get really interested in our problems as our teachers. We get interested in our dukkha as our teachers of liberation, of freedom. It's really about... um, saying yes to all of life and seeing how it's workable. I've mentioned this trip to Burma a few times. Um, a, a couple of years ago, I, 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 I went to Burma, and it was a hard thing for me to do. But one reason I went is that life, that practice in the United States, had started to just feel a little too easy to me. And um, I wanted a challenge. So I decided to go to Burma because I knew that in Burma um, I wouldn't be able to control things quite as much. As, as as I can on a retreat here in the United States. And I have a very uh, sensitive body. I have a body that gets pretty whacked out pretty easy. So I knew it was going to be challenging. So the first day we arrived in um, this monastery, I discovered that this nice cootie I had with a beautiful view, it was really quite a beautiful view, um, was very smoky that, that that smoke fires from the town came up, and I have some um, mild asthma, so I was like, "Oh no <laughs> and then I found out that the room we were having this seminar on uh, Buddhist psychology that the room that we were having the seminar in was um 
um, new and had just been painted. The cement had just been painted, and I have a very sensitive body. In fact, I had a lot of trouble with my health a number of years ago because I was in a room with, um, I mean, a building with cement floors that had been painted in the middle of the winter. And so I was like, oh, no. And then um, I was moving. There was a cupboard in my little cootie that had um, mothballs in it. And that's another thing I'm sensitive to. So I was trying to move this big cupboard out of my room, and I pulled my back out. (laughs) So it just kind of went on and on. (laughs) This was like my first day right in Burma. And and, um, I I started to panic. I I had... um, my plane tickets home for three weeks in the future, and there were five flights I needed to take home. So it wasn't like I could just say, oh, well, this isn't any fun. I'm going home. <laughs> because um, it, it was really going to be quite impossible to change my my tickets. And um, so I was experiencing a lot of panic, and I said, okay, well, let's explore panic. And I got really interested in panic. You know, it was like, wow, it does actually start like low and it goes up in waves. And then the waves go down, you know. And then I noticed like I put my attention to my lower body. There wasn't as much panic as when it was in the upper body. And then, you know, noticing the kinds of thoughts and the stories that I would tell myself. And then um, there was a song on the, um, I think it's okay to tell you this get you guys thinking, but there was a song on the radio at the time that I really loved a lot by um, somebody named Ray LeMontagne, and the song was, it would start with, trouble, 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 worry, 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 worry. (laughs) So I would start singing that song to me, like... (laughs) Every time I would start on one of my little panic routines, you know, I'm going to get asthma and won't be able to breathe or whatever it was, I'd sing to myself, trouble, 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 worry. You know, he has this deep worry, worry, worry. He has this, like, deep, really gravelly voice. And you know what? Panic's workable, you know? It was a great teacher. It was a fabulous teacher. So whatever it is, whatever our dukkha is, this is our best teacher. Because dukkha won't take no for an answer. It keeps coming back. We have to learn how to make peace with it. So we often think um, or hope that practice is about getting comfortable, about blissing out. But I think that practice is about seeing what makes us uncomfortable and making peace with that. So getting intimate with our dukkha. Um, Charlotte Jokobek calls uh, retreat controlled suffering. (laughs) Uh, John Amaro calls retreat learning to fail properly. Another Suzuki uh, quote. A student of Suzuki Roshi's, a publisher of beat poetry, saw his teacher of a year and a half in a private interview. He said that he couldn't continue, that every time he sat in meditation he started to cry. I can't take it, he said. I'm leaving. I can't be here anymore. 
Suzuki didn't tell him to stay. He merely said, you try and you try and you fail and then you go deeper. So through all of our um, failing, trying, trying, and failing, we slowly begin to develop equanimity. We begin to understand how we find ourselves, how we cause ourselves to suffering, how we make a problem out of life, and how we can find freedom and liberation. We start to learn how to flow with life with a sense of peace. When I was young, my um, father liked to rent movies from the library, and we had this old projector, and we'd put movies on. And one movie he got a number of times because I kept requesting it was a Buster Keaton movie. Now, many of you probably don't remember who Buster Keaton was, but he was this silent... um, he did silent movies, so this, these were really old movies, and he was this kind of funny-looking guy and did these great movies, and there was this one, I don't even remember the name of it, but it was about this journey that he took, uh, or you know, the actor, the person took across, the, um, across Canada on this railway. So it starts with he's reading this newspaper in um, England, and it's talk, in the newspapers like how beautiful Canada is, so he jumps into the... Um, ocean there and comes out in Canada. You know, it's kind of a wacky, funny movie. So he comes out in Canada and he finds this little cart on the on the railroad and he sits in it. And this cart like takes off across the country. And as he's going, there's these beautiful views, and then there'll be like a total downpour. And he'd have this little box next to him on the cart and he'd take out what he needed. So he'd take out an umbrella when it would rain and he'd be sitting along and he'd just be cool, just chilled, you know. Just smiling with his little umbrella when it's pouring. And then it would stop raining. He'd put his umbrella in and he'd just be moving along on this railroad track. Beautiful mountains, bison, whatever. Oh, snowstorm. Okay, he grabs his, opens his little box, takes out his big coat. You know, his big, like, fur coat, like a Siberian-looking coat. And, um, and he's just sitting there, you know, just cruising along on the railroad. Just looks totally fine, you know, with the whole thing. And I loved this movie. I would have my dad, like, I'd always be, get that movie, get that movie. Um, To me, this is like, it was like equanimity. It was like knowing how to live with balance. You know, he did what he needed to do. When it rained, he got his umbrella. When it was cold, he put on his coat. Um, But he wasn't, like, blown out of shape, whatever it was. You know, Indians uh, attacked, or I don't know what it was, but it was... um, a lot of different things happened to him, and he was just cool, just choked with the whole thing. So maybe we can learn to kind of move through life with this uh, equanimity, with this balance, with this ability to meet what um, comes our way, to meet our experience with peace. And as this, as we develop 
equanimity, we develop this steadiness that's unshakable. As we learn to trust our ability to meet life with balance, with openness, with non-reactivity, with non-clinging, with freedom, we develop this steadiness that's unshakable. Sometimes the image is used of a mountain. You know, through snow, rain, sleet, hail, wind, the mountain is steady. And we develop this sense of lightness, of joy, whatever the circumstances. And we develop this sense of spaciousness in our mind. A quote from the Majjhima Nikaya. Develop a mind that is vast like space where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind like vast sky. Well, I've run out of time. I had more equanimity stories for you. Maybe another night. So it's a journey, the fourth noble truth, the path, the journey. We journey exploring our suffering, exploring our liberation. Some days it flows, other days are work days. Another person I like to read a lot is Pablo Neruda, a poet from Chile, one of my favorite poets. Just found a little snippet of a poem here. Actually, it was from his last year of life. The last poetry I read from him was his last year of life, things that he hadn't yet published. Beautiful, beautiful, deep poems of him him knowing that he was going to die and um, kind of making his final peace with the world. It's a little inspiration for you all. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.